Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Welcome back to part two of our California conversation with Michael Cotaldo of Cotaldo Tax Law PC and special guest host Stacey Roberts. Follow us and let us know your thoughts. We don't always have that information as practitioners guiding our clients early on to petition these states to say, oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. We need to, you know, we need to do this or we'd like to do this. And so it's important, though, I think for the listeners to understand that these these rules do exist, but there's a process about how to apply them. And it's not just you can take a position on a return and the states are going to let it sail through. No. And in fact, California has a, a policy. It's in a it's in a I think it's a notice, but you cannot take an alternative apportionment position on an original return. You need to file a so you need to go, you need, if, if you think it's unfair in 25-137, the alternative apportionment statute should apply. You file the return under the rules that are not fair. Then you file, I would file a claim for refund for one, just to make sure it wasn't losing anything, but then say we want alternative apportionment and here's why. And if you have a good case, great. If not, you can take it up. But, you know, most of these cases that are close end up settling. So if you have something, it's, uh, you know, you measure the value of it and the time and expense and how much we're talking about. It's usually when there's a, a big sale, a big sure. slug of income. Yep. As we've been, kind of been talking about apportionment, can we just, we'd love to kind of hear, you know, California has their legal ruling, the 2201 on kind of the sales of services stuff. Mm-hmm. What are... <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yes. Technical term. Right. A technical term. Stuff. That is the yeah. yes. It depends it? and stuff. That is the language of a state tax professional. How are you feeling about that? I understand why you said stuff because it's very hard <laughs> to articulate exactly what was going on and what they're doing. You have to do a lot of reading between the lines to see what they're trying to do. So taking just a step back and looking at what they did and what they moved away from, they are pushing more the look-through concept of looking to the customer's customer, but they don't say it all that plainly. They are bound by the statute, and the statute looks to, it really, the statute says purchaser. The regulation is just called purchaser customer for some reason. I wish they would change that. Nevertheless, they say customer's customer, and they, that's what this this most recent legal ruling is kind of retracting a, a chief counsel ruling that earlier in uh, 2017, and there was one in 2015 also that applied the rules for intangibles and the rules for intangibles in the, in the regulations break out intangibles into marketing and non-marketing intangibles. So marketing intangible would be like Jeffrey Giraffe trademark kind of stuff. Non-marketing intangible would be like a, a patent for manufacturing. And in the rules for the, the distinction is in the marketing intangible, they look through to the ultimate customer. Um, so they won't just look at the, the Jeffrey store. They'll look to what's where's the market or, uh, for sales. But with non-marketing intangibles, they look to the immediate customer, purchaser. 
So this legal ruling, and it started with uh, 2015-3, and so I'm going to talk about 2015-3 and 2017-1 first before I get into 2022-1, because you kind of need to know what they were doing first and why are they, what are they doing now to correct what they're, what they're, they don't like anymore. So 2015-3 is where this whole notion of analogizing the marketing and non-marketing intangible to services. So FTB looked at this situation and the situation involves a company that sort of aggregated data for financial uh, companies for investment advisors and was all online and they sold it to the investment advisors who then use that for their clients and their clients use this stuff also. And so FTB came out and they said, all right, we don't look to under for services. We don't look to, we don't do the look through rule rule. It's we look to the customer. This is all going to be really confusing and not make a lot of sense. I'm trying to explain what they did. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> um, so they say, okay, well, that's what the statute says, but to reasonably approximate how these, these uh, sales revenue was sourced, we're going to look to this CPU usage that the, uh, the client maintained, which was the, the, the customer's customer's activity. So the more activity they had, the more the cost was. So they said, okay, we look to our client, the investment advisors. We look to them. But how do we figure out where they got the benefit? Well, we're going to look to this. This CPU data is, is fair to look at that. So that's how they ended that. And looking back now to, uh, to what 2022-1 says, so it seems like the answer is going to be the same. Uh, but I think it's the rationale, this whole notion of mar- the non-marketing and marketing sales, they're going to do away with it. They, they have done away with it without saying as much. 2017-1, this one's kind of like, really, I kind of think this is what they really did not like. And this was, it's kind of similar, Meredith, to the situation you brought up with the insurance companies. So this is a healthcare provider. So you have the healthcare plans, they've got their, their subscribers who get prescriptions and whatnot. And so they contract with a company that is going to fulfill all the prescriptions. So the rule, the question was, okay, so where does this revenue get sourced to when we're the... Um, we're, the, we're providing this service to the medical plans and, and we're delivering the medications to the ultimate users. And so they looked and they said, okay, uh, we're going to do marketing versus non-marketing again. Now this service is, we think they, they concluded it was a, a non-marketing service. It wasn't marketing, it was filling something. So then they said, all right, well, following that, we just look to the customer. We don't look to the customer's customer. So what they concluded was, so this should be sourced to where the direct customer would have had to perform this had they not engaged you at all. So they, and they concluded, well, that would be at your office. That would be at the office of the healthcare companies, not where all of the, the patients are or the subscribers we're taking the medications are. So those are the two chief counsel rulings, which now we get to uh, the legal ruling 2022-1. 
and it goes through three different scenarios. The scenario one and scenario three, I don't, nothing's changed and they were pretty obvious. But scenario two is exactly 2017-1, the exact scenario. And they came out the other way. They said, in this case, we they didn't even mention this marketing and non-marketing service at all, not a word of it. And they said, look to, and they kind of redefined, refocused how we're figuring out where the benefit of the service was received. Before, they were really focused on where. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? But in this new legal ruling, what they've done is they said, we're not going to look at where. We're going to look at what is it? What is the benefit? And by defining the benefit as being your customers their drugs, they kind of answer the question of where it is. So that's how they defined it in the legal ruling. Where, where are you getting your drugs? That's where the uh, subscribers are. So that's where this revenue should, should be sourced. And then at the end, they say, Chief Counsel Ruling 2015-3 and Chief Counsel Ruling 2017-1 are revoked. They don't explain why. They just say they're revoked. But that's my, this is my two cents worth as far as what all this means. And with that, I'm going to take a drink. This. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast are not a visual medium. There's not alcohol. I was going to say, do you need something stronger than just water? I plead the fifth. We don't judge here. We don't judge here. (laughs) I mean, you can take it, you know, for those who may be seeing a clip, take a look at Stacey's over her right shoulder. Uh, Over here. Oh, (laughs) no comment. And so, Michael, we really appreciate your, you know, your insight and your knowledge and um, getting a chance to talk to you. And just kind of as we wrap up, don't want to pigeonhole you and you are a multi-state tax, you know, experts. What is one of your most interesting or favorite non-California positions or cases that you've kind of gotten to play around with non-california let me think about this there's a lot of ways to answer this i'm always careful when i get the questions we'll get back to 30 days we do caveat <laughs> we do uh you know this is not live we can always edit and we do That's caveat right. that we are not re- we are not providing tax advice during sure. these tapings <laughs> so like are you thinking about a like a specific state or more like like the vast holdings case and investing apportionment is really interesting. It it really kind of doesn't really matter what state you're in. Now I know vast holdings, the Supreme Court in Massachusetts said, Hey, it's not authorized by statute. Get out of here. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder what will happen with the legislature. Maybe they will say this is fine. And then is it okay? They, they, said it was constitutionally. And then we've got this Goldman Sachs case out of New York City, which is really doing the same thing. They said it was fine constitutionally to tax based on investee apportionment. Something that, like the things I get get interested in is where is this going from here? And it takes a long time for things to develop in the state and local tax worlds to where this is going. Like investee apportionment that creates nexus like the states rely on this uh, international harvester case and J.C. Penney's case, and you see the Supreme Court cases from authorities to say, "Hey, due process, no problem." 
but that's a long time ago and due process has a lot since then. I mean, this is international shoe is the case. Everyone talks about in minimum contacts, international shoe. And we look at what the Supreme court has done recently, like in the Kimberly Rice trust case uh, in Wayfair, there's a Wayfair referring to Quill. There's a separate due process requirement as well as commerce clause. So is it enough or do we have to look at the contacts of the taxpayer or is it just enough that it's sourced to the state? Is that enough? Like the, and it really like they, what the states will say to get jurisdiction is our uh, international harvester has the state given anything for which it can ask in return. It's such a vague concept and, you know, six degrees of separation at some point, you're going to maybe find something there, but is that enough under current uh, jurisprudence under the due process clause to, to allow states to do that. Like we talk about Wayfair, but Wayfair's commerce clause case doesn't even talk about due process. The fact that taxpayers thought they had this sort of protection under the commerce clause via Quill, that's gone now, but that was kind of like where all the action would have been. That, hey, we're protected. We got Quill. We're good. We don't even need to talk about due process. We're fine. Well, now that's gone. So I think due process is going to have a a revival, we're going to see more due process cases. And that's not just way like, that's not just sales tax, sales and use tax collection obligations, but you know, the states look at Wayfair and say, you know, if for those states that don't already have a factor presence or economic nexus, hey, we can do it now. We got Wayfair. We'll rely on that, despite the fact that it's just a Commerce Clause case and a use tax case. And then what about the localities? Like uh, the San Francisco, and you know, localities throughout the country. Economic nexus there, they can. Why can't they do it then? And you look Didn't at Philly come out with something last year, think, or two years ago. Yeah, yeah. No. San Francisco also. They've got a five hundred thousand dollar threshold. Um, so there's going to be, and for those folks who are making all their money online, I mean, SaaS is the obvious one, but. You know, technology is moving so fast and like what's not done online now. Um, there's going to be some challenges for them to figure out how to comply or when to, you know, because the, a lot of these cases come about because they didn't know. Like, I don't know of very many taxpayers who are like, let's just plan for litigation. They just like, oh, well, you're saying we have to do this. That doesn't seem right, but we'll just do it anyway because we don't want to spend our time on taxes. We don't like state and local tax like you do, Mike. <laughs> okay. So... There's going to be a lot of sort of surprise assessments because of because of this, and then retroactivity um, that's still up in the air. Yeah, there's a lot of arguments to be made. Activity for your state, and I know that we're you know coming to a conclusion here shortly here, but I did want to just kind of pick your brain some things that we've seen recently for some of our pure remote sellers. You know, they went ahead and they registered, started collecting, started remitting in the state of California based on that magical April 1, you know, 2019 date. And now they're starting to get notices from the FTB saying, hey, where's your income tax returns? Mm -hmm. That seems to be a very common theme recently. Oh, yeah. They share. Clearly they're, clearly, they're matching up records. But I guess I go back to kind of that nexus discussion that we had early on about you know, the magical number for, and, and again, this is where maybe we shouldn't hang our hat so much on the numbers, but, 
you know, the Wayfair threshold being 500, but the income tax threshold being something more than that. And mm-hmm. our taxpayer is going to challenge that to say, hey, that's, that wasn't the threshold in 2019. You know, I, I don't know. Does it, do any of those arguments even have legs, right? Well, yeah. I mean, to me, they're two separate regimes. Yep. So, hey, if you've got nexus under one but not another, you don't file in California if you don't have income tax nexus. Like, let's just say you got $600,000. You know, you thread the needle where you don't have to do income tax. Well, that's right. – I don't know if FTB is going to say you have – I don't think FTB is going to say you have – Anyway, if this statute, and they've also come out, there was a legal ruling, geez, I or I'm sorry, probably six or seven years ago about throwback. And basically they said the legislature came up with this, and this is sort of constitutionally the limit. Oh, so you need to hit this limit, or you have to throw back in California. But you know, they change their mind depending on the on the facts in the case. Yeah, yeah, you got to, you know, you could be subject to use tax collection and uh, registration with the CDTFA for sales tax, but not to the income franchise tax. It's possible. Yep. Well, or could you claim 86272, but under what condition of reinterpretation, modernization that's always been there or traditional, like non modernized? Yeah, the oh, unmodern, right. the old rusty. Right, the old, the old, yeah, the 1959 version, right? <laughs> and maybe it needs a tuna. It's possible it needs a tuna, but it is federal legislation. Correct. It's kind of the law is what the law is. State's arguments are we're just interpreting facts. The law is what the law is. And the big question is, are you activity in, in a state based solely on your customers going online and looking at stuff? Seems like a slippery slope. Like if I send you a fax, that's no. If I call you, no. But if I click on the website, that's yes all of a sudden. And then I wonder about the Internet Tax Freedom Act, non-discrimination provisions. So man, you are definitely picking on, uh, this is the only way we're chatting is via the Internet. And those people are using stamps or a fax machine. We're not. But, you know, their argument is eventually stamps and fax machines just don't exist anymore. And it's all interconnected. And if you use the Internet, then you have nexus everywhere. Seems to defeat the purpose of the Commerce Clause uh, and the Internet Tax Freedom Act. And it just doesn't seem right. Like, I'm sitting here in my office and I'm on the Internet and I'm just creating nexus everywhere. Like, what about the... And here's the other thing. I didn't to wrap up, you guys can just say, be quiet. But <laughs> literally, I told Stacy this when we did a, a webinar together years ago that I could talk nonstop about salt. Like, give me a week. I can just keep talking. There's so much to talk about. So we talked about the market-based sourcing. We talked about how market-based sourcing can create sales, which create nexus. Now you're looking at these market-based sourcing rules, which are iffy, vague, you're unsure, but was going to ultimately create nexus for you. And now look at the jurisprudence of uh, the due process jurisprudence of what creates nexus. It's like, man, you know what? I'm, I'm here in India and I have a client in Japan that I do some stuff for remotely. And this Japanese company has customers in California. Do I have due process nexus in California because of that? Well, I don't know. That's, that's one that's ripe for, litigation for sure. 
Yeah. And probably not just in California. No, 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 no. These issues are <laughs> states. That's Every right. state. That's why the conversation is right. never ending. You That's get right. through all 50 of them. And then the first one that you started is back change what they did by the time you got done talking about all the other ones. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. But the Constitution applies to all the states. So these argue, constitutional arguments apply to all of them. Yep. Well, Michael, we really appreciate your time and certainly kind of your your insight. And it was a good reminder to think about what's next when these kind of decisions come out, these rulings come out, because oftentimes as tax practitioners, we're working in arrears, right? We're mm-hmm. fixing the past. We're arguing the past. The current tax return we're working on is for last year. So it is a nice reminder to be thinking about what's next and getting away from that next or, you know, that historical. So yeah, I'm even further back. I'm working five to 10 years, <laughs> <laughs> but always keeping track of the, the current too, but you know, audits, you know, another thing we should mention, if we we're talking about California, it would be, we got to mention the, the regulations and they're, so the, the um, 25136-2 market-based sourcing regulations in California, originally adopted in uh, 2011, modified a couple of years later. And since it started, there's been an open regulation project and there still is one now. They have proposed regulations that they went to the board to ask if they could go to final. Can we go through the process final to finalize these? Now, to do that, they have to issue a notice and then have hearings and be all final. They have interested parties meetings, which are all just drafts, stuff, conversation. Mm-hmm. But to actually get regulations final, they have to go through all of this process. And they have to ask the board permission to do that. And they did that in December. So now they have the green light. And they said, yeah, you know, a couple little things, but we're ready to go. Then out of the blue, we get uh, legal ruling 2022-1. And it's like, wow, where is this? So perhaps they, because they haven't done anything yet as far as the formal notice, perhaps they're re-tinkering with it. But for anyone interested in their California liability, you really got to follow what's going on with these regs because there's some pretty big changes, which we could talk about for another two hours. Mm. Honestly, there's so many. <laughs> well, we'll meet Nevada next time and talk about these over something a little stronger, you know, <laughs> than water. <laughs> Absolutely. Meet halfway in a non-income tax state. <laughs> I won't bring my phone because maybe that will be <laughs> California. I don't, I don't know. know where am I. Yeah, I exactly. <laughs> I have a non-Colorado uh, zip code or area code. So where am I? Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. What are those commercials right. where you can get a VPN and wherever you want? That's where you are. Yep. I'm just oh. going to start operating off burner phones. Use them, throw them out like I'm a crook. That's not that's not suspicious or anything. No. I can't get away with it. They all they all know where I am. They know where I am. I can't get away. So I. I well, I was gonna say you know. you're in Hotel California. What are you talking about? Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's a whole other hour conversation. About how do you leave? How do you leave? Exactly. Exactly. Well, you thank you, everyone. Yep. This absolutely, has been another absolutely. episode of Saltivation. Until next time. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. 
This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented. You should consult.